Welcome to the Fracture Line, the official weekly news feed from the Chest Wall Injury Society, where we will listen to all the bottom line CWIS updates, shout outs, fun facts, and weekly banner. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Crisco, and I'm joined always by Dr. Tom White, Dr. Adam Kay, and Sarah Ann Whitbeck. Well, welcome back to Fracture Line, everybody. This is Dr. Dobin, Andy Dobin, president of CWIS. I'm taking over for Dr. Kriskow, who's in Japan getting face shots of powder and making us all jealous. And uh, I'm very fortunate today to be joined by the infamous T-Dub, Zach, the one and only Prime Bauman, who is dressed like Neon Dion or Prime Time. However you want to know of him with the glasses like, and hats and all. Everett, if you're listening, you can suck it. I'm the real prime. Everett, it's my booty. And of course, the one and only fearless leader and our CEO, Saran Whitback. So uh, welcome back, everybody. I hope you guys had a good week. Can we request Director Bauman wear the primetime sunglasses through his presentation at the summit? Yeah. Can, is, yeah. You, does anyone else feel like that we could somehow, you know, double stamp that into to the requisite for showing up. Yes, well, definitely. And I think uh, I think that's an excellent segue, Sarah, into one of our major topics today, which is what to wear and what not to wear at the summit. So sunglasses are appropriate. Sunglasses in a Speedo is not appropriate for podium Who presentation. Says? We haven't voted on that. Any, any sort of bare chestedness, I think we can, on either gender. Unless, of course, you're going to do a thoracotomy. You may do a thoracotomy bare-chested. Or you're from Florida, and you're a Florida man. <laughs> Florida man. I think that the appropriate attire at the summit is anything that is not obscene and is tasteful and clean. I mean, those, I think those are the criteria. So let me throw a couple things your way, Tom, see what you think. I just went out and bought a brand new gold chain with a humongous clock that I want to wear around my neck. Can I? Is that appropriate? No, but you can wear it. If it keeps you on time for your presentation, you can wear it. If you run over, then no, you may not wear it. Huh, okay. Outfit number two that I just bought. Andy, is this appropriate? I just bought a pair of ashless chaps. I'm gonna hope, I was gonna hope to wear them at the summit. Is that, or is that not appropriate? That is only appropriate to wear to Tom's room after the after party. I don't even know what you're talking about. Or Zach? You may wear that in an Uber on your way home from one of the parties, <laughs> but don't expect your Ubers. That's what he tried it on. That's exactly it. He was like, I need to try these on. I need an opinion. Who would be best for this? An Uber driver, of course. I'm calling bullshit. You're a cowboy. You know that all chaps are ass. I know they all. Okay. All right. <laughs> That's redundant. You know, the chaps don't have asses. Just depends on whether you're wearing anything underneath or not. That's the question you're asking. Can I go assless in my chaps, right? That's what you're asking. Well, I guess that's more the question I'm asking. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the clarification. You know, you're, you're a legacy, you're a former president. You will be a former president. You know, you are a former president. I say yes, sure. All right, in all seriousness, let's have Sarah give us the uh, rundown on what people really should expect for attire because some of us are very averse to wearing suits and ties and and whether or not that's appropriate or or what sir so why don't you give us the official rundown of what the summit dress code really is that's fantastic i would be happy to you know what this dress code is is what makes you happy and if you're happy in jeans and a t-shirt cool show up in 
jeans and a t-shirt and just bring a clean t-shirt each day because otherwise that's gross you'll be the smelly kid or if you're happiest in a suit each day then you know what that's fantastic you should wear your suit and you know don that as as long as you would like i think one of the things that to me is best about the summit is that it's a very judgment-free environment there's no, you know, you leave your ego at the door. You also leave the pretension of, oh, everybody wears this or everybody does this. And I, that kind of thing really is lost on me. So you do you. To coin an overused phrase, you do you. And what makes you happy? Wear that thing. You got to believe. Unless it's chaps with no pants on underneath. In which case, you don't do you. <laughs> you do what we say and wear pants. Or at least leggings. Or somebody's going to do it to you is what's going to happen. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> if it's not socially acceptable to rave, it's probably not socially acceptable at the meeting. Having said that, I still think there are there's a time and place for a little bit of formality. I think residents and fellows are going to feel uncomfortable at the podium if they're not, they don't have a sport jacket or a suit on. But I think it's okay if they don't wear ties. They can wear whatever they want, but I think I think it's reasonable to expect that. And I, I've seen Dr. Bauman, you know, that guy, that guy dresses to the nines. He's always in a sport jacket. So he, you know, him. You know I, I think that's perfectly appropriate. I, I think the perfect attire is I a, think that's true. Is a I... suit with a nice, crisp, clean shirt with or without a tie. And I would agree, Tom. Comfortable. But I think there are a lot of people that wouldn't agree with you. I think on the podium for most members, it is uh, at least... Um, a business a business appearance. If you're sitting in the audience, you should feel free to be reasonably casual. Um, and most of the after events are also reasonably casual. The social events are reasonably casual. Um, Sarah, I forget what, if there's a dinner or something that might be a little bit more sort of business casual, just sort of a nicer pair of pants and a shirt. But again, I, I think that you don't necessarily have to feel the need to be in a, here, I'm going to say my age, in a three-piece suit and a tie. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. I think, to your point, Dr. White, about how our residents and fellows would feel, I, so I get calls, I, I mean, I would say many, if not, I will be bold, most of our residents and fellows that are on the podium usually end up reaching out at some point to talk about clothing. Because I think for a lot of them, you know, they're also looking for jobs or you know for positions down the road like and they want to set a good impression and i get that one resident told me one year when i said you know you don't have to wear a suit and he kind of laughed and he said oh no we wear suits in this program you know so it may be something to even ask your program director or whoever the senior author on your paper is because maybe they have a preference don't ask me for example, if Dr. Schubel is your program director, you might want to wear a tuxedo. I would like to see somebody present a paper in a tuxedo, though. I would, too. That would make my day. If you're listening to this, you know, scientific presen presenters, and you're thinking, what am I going to do to stand out? You know what? Full cummerbund, tuxedo. Whoa, cummerbund. Like, maybe even, yes. Blue tux with. Maybe even, like, Dumb and Dumber style. Orange, pale blue. Pale blue. Ruffled lapels. Ruffled. You're going to win. No matter how good your paper is, you're just going to win if you're dressed Hands like that. Down. Good. So I think we got the attire all squared away here. One more issue. 
It's before Memorial Day, right? So we have to th you have to think about whether you can wear white and whether it's appropriate. So oh my gosh. What about the white? I'm, I'm going to ask the ask the panel. What about your white bucks? Can you wear your white bucks? Oh, white bucks are good all year round. I don't know if that is more of a that might be a tradition from like 1950, Tom. Um, I think that here in 2024, you can wear your white bucks whenever you want. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with Tom in this one, man. Old school says Memorial Day to Labor Day. That's it. And it's pre-Memorial yeah. Day, but white bucks are different. If you asked white bucks and white pants or white linen pants, the answer is no. Correct. And seersucker. Can you wear seersucker in April? Seersucker, Tom, is based on climate. So you can wear seersucker below the Mason-Dixon line over, the, over 65 degrees. But we're not below the Mason-Dixon line, and we're not going to be above 65 degrees in April. So, therefore, the answer is no. I'm with you. I'll Correct. leave it at home. Okay. Do you think any of our international listeners are asking themselves, what do you think the Mason-Dixon line is? And do you think they mean 65 international degrees? International listeners? I mean, there's just a lot. <laughs> We have no, international sir. I don't think no so. Sarah, but I just want big points with your mom. That is correct. My mother will love listening to this episode about appropriateness of attire. She's all about wearing clothing that is appropriate for the moment. This is a true story. My grandma thought that flying was like required, that you had to dress up to fly, you know? And she was so, like, so clear about it, so fussy about it. And it wasn't until probably, I don't know, I mean, it was definitely within the last five or six years that I stopped wearing like a skirt and heels to get on an airplane because my grandma had just drilled it into me so strongly that like you have to wear it and like you have to dress up to get on a plane. And it just, it, it was something that she always said. She's like, you know, people will treat you better. You act better. Like everybody wears, you know, a, a dress or a skirt on a plane. And yet now, goodness if you see someone who's not in juicy couture pants, you're kind of amazed. So it's, uh, we've definitely changed as a culture. Juicy couture. My mother still gets dressed up to go into the city. Absolutely. Yes. Tom and Sarah, are the Jazz going to be in town this weekend? Should I pack my Utah Jazz jersey? Well, the Jazz are always amazing. Um, so I would say definitely plan it. It'll be the end of regular season. So, and given how we've been playing, we, you know, I'm almost certain we'll not make it into the postseason. So this will probably be like the end of, you know, the end of your opportunity. I would, uh, I would encourage it. If, if there's an opportunity, you know, check out the jazz while you're in town. Do you still have your Malone jersey? I actually had a signed John Stockton jersey that I loved with all my fangirl heart and eventually had to get rid of. But it's, uh, I, I did love that thing. I just looked up the schedule. They will be home against Denver on Tuesday night, the 9th, and Thursday night, the 11th, against the Rockets, Houston. So there will be two home jazz games over the summit period, 9th and 11th. Fantastic. Well, and we're, from where the hotel is, you're just three blocks away from the stadium. So, I mean, literally three straight blocks. It's, it's very, very close. So downtown will be hopping. All right. So today is part of Fractional, and we want to cover some clinical scenarios. So we kind of want to talk about some cases that we've seen or done or are coming our way. Tom, do you have one that, that's sort of wetting your whistle lately or one that you're kind of struggling with? Or I've been on the bench for a month, so I don't really have any acute cases. But I, you and I had a conversation earlier about someone who's had multiple resections of cartilage and is now a, a cripple 
uh, so to speak. We all know about gastric cripples and vascular cripples. I want to coin the term chest wall cripple today and suggest that these patients are out there. We see them. They're challenging. We don't really know what to do with that, most of them. I think we need it's a topic that we need to get more familiar with and start addressing some better therapies for these patients. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You and I were just sort of having a brief talk about before. I, I had clinic on Monday and I saw three people that were disabled. So I saw a gentleman that we talked about who's had multiple chest wall resections and basically has had his entire costal margin resected previously at various institutions and is 31 and disabled, cannot work, cannot function. I saw a 51-year-old construction worker who was involved in a terrible motorcycle crash with flail chest that was unfixed, with scapula injury, flail injury, non-union, and what's worse is a left iliac pelvic fracture that has rendered his entire, so it's all left-sided injury, and basically has a smashed left pelvis as well with his iliac in like seven different pieces, which is causing an issue for me because any reconstruction, I would have probably used that. And that's going to be really challenging. And then I saw a third patient. Yeah, yeah. And then I saw a third patient who didn't actually have a severe injury, but had he was such a pulmonary cripple at a baseline and morbidly obese that a small degree of chest wall injury resulted in a tremendous amount of morbidity associated with it. That was just three patients. It was my little quick morning clinic the other day. And again, all of whom are disabled and, you know, almost like we're the last stop. Well, we've all seen these patients. We've thought about them. And I think one of the major decision points is this disabled patient, is it something that I can correct? Or is this just another operation in a long line of operations that's not going to result in any improvement? And I think collectively, we might be able to answer that question and, uh, and then and facilitate that decision. So, for example, a guy didn't get an operation, he needed one, it's a year later, he's got bad implosion of his chest wall with multiple non-unions. There's a guy that none of us would hesitate to operate on, at least I don't think. But that's a far cry from that patient who had reconstruction, his plates are removed, they got put back in, now he's got cartilage that's been resected, now he's got non-unions, he's got chronic pain. You know, that those scenarios are different. And I think what I'd like to see us work on is if we can help our chest wall friends with that decision about whether or not somebody can be corrected or not. What do you think about that idea? I mean, I like the idea. I think that part of the issue stems from, I just, you know, I just operated on a guy today. It was a long case. It was a hard case. I haven't, I haven't seen the chest wall this bad in a while. It's, it's been a hot minute, but I mean, this guy broke his sternum and it was a bad sternum. It was an oblique fracture. And then uh, on top of that, he had the right side uh, was basically ribs four through eight, all broken twice. His whole like cartilage of ribs five, six, seven, and eight weren't even attached to the sternum anymore. His lung was, I could see his lung sitting there. It was probably at least a five centimeter gap. And then the left side was broken four through eight. And, uh, you know, it's just, I just can't fathom not fixing these individuals. So I think part of this issue stems, like, it's, it's upstream. It's like, <clears throat> these patients, they need surgery. They need an operation. And maybe this is a little bit of my inherent bias coming out. But, I mean, these individuals, they need to be fixed. And, you know, there's 
centers out there. There's trauma surgeons or thoracic surgeons out there that wouldn't plate these individuals. And I just don't understand why. I mean, this guy, like if I wouldn't have done anything for him, like he would have wound up to be a, a cripple. You know I mean? Like there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that if you don't do stuff for these individuals in the acute setting, you're going to be paying for it. And they're going to be paying for it even more, um, you know, a year down the road. I think that's where the, I think that's where a lot of the issue stems from, you know, resecting the cartilage and stuff like that. That's a little different. Um, that's a little different beast, but uh, you know, I think that we have the opportunity to really influence the outcomes for a lot of these patients um, by being a little bit more aggressive, you know, especially in that flail chest population, you know, that, that really badly damaged um, chest wall. Couldn't agree more, but we also have to remove, help remove the stigma that if you can't or won't operate on somebody that it, it means you're a bad surgeon. There's lots of surgeons that they aren't going to be comfortable with that repair, but, but they need to be, feel comfortable and they need a mechanism by which they can get that patient to someone who could fix them. Totally agree. I think that's the key. I think, you know, recognizing that whether or not you can do it and then getting them to a place that can handle the problem, I think is really key. But yeah, I mean, I agree with you. But unfortunately, I still think we're seeing these people that show up in a delayed fashion. And Tom, I, I, I agree with you. The patient that I saw, it was really interesting. He signed a waiver that said that they had never seen something like this before, but they were going to try anyway. I was like, I, I haven't ever heard of anything like that even. And You mean the surgeon made the patient sign a waiver? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. Here's your consent form. Here's your waiver of liability. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And again, I think you're right. I mean, I think the two patients I described are two very different populations, but they're both equally desperate. And, you know, I know that we've talked about this in the past that a lot of these patients reach out to Sarah and, and that's how they come through, but we don't really have a, a true marketing presence out there. And, you know, a lot of us, our institutions don't necessarily market us or put things on the web. I mean, you know, for example, the slip rib stuff, a lot of stuff comes through Adam Hansen. And his wife, Lisa, who's on the Facebook group, a lot of people come through Everett Erickson's website because they have a very good website with some marketing. I know Adam Sheroff does too. So, you know, there's not really a focused place for people to turn to for a lot of the stuff. And slipped rib, there is much more so than there are for just people with more chronic injury. I agree. And you know that our, our expert case thing that we've been doing, you guys have been involved with multiple times. You know, it's most of those patients are chronic reconstructions, not acute injuries. And I think a logical thing to do would be to expand that service line into uh, those, those surgeons who have an acute issue. We, we would have to, we have to be very, we have to change some of the processes so that it's more real time. But I think that could be very valuable. Yeah, I agree. You know, it would be really interesting is to try and figure out a way to have patients reach out and have patients essentially to try and do some sort of marketing with patients who said, hey, listen, I have this problem, you know, and, and somehow, you know, I know that Sarah, and you can comment on this. I know that you get a fair amount of this. And I, and I know you've talked about before that usually comes at two or three in the morning when people are uh, scouring the web looking for help. But maybe we need to figure out some way to have a little bit more forward presence with this stuff on the web to try and help direct people too. Well, I think it's it's a hard situation because we don't want to get I don't want to get stuck. You know, they ask me these clinical questions, and I have to be very clear and upfront of I'm not a clinician. I can't answer your clinical questions, but I can connect you with people that can. And you know, so that line of trying to help people, you know, can help connect them to information and other people without 
you know, directly speaking for something, that's tough, you know, and I don't know how we navigate that optimally. Well, I think you've made comments of this on the past, and I agree with you. I mean, we're not going to make a recommendation, but provide them with regional expertise. And, you know, to Tom's point, I think that, you know, there are some cases that a lot of people feel comfortable with, and some cases that people don't, that maybe should be referred to people with higher acuity, you know, just like we do with the American College of Surgeons, you know, we fill out things on the American College of Surgeons right on our profiles, you know, do you speak another language? You know, what are your expertise, you know, is minimally invasive, robotic, you know, advanced, and we probably could come up with a bunch of areas of expertise within chest wall that we could put in our profiles from our own membership. So that you might, so Sarah, so that you might be able to say, these people at least self-identify as this type of um, surgeon. I was going to suggest that we had a call schedule of some type, at least initially. So Dobin's on for the next week and Zach's on the week after that. And I'm on the week after that. And any clinical questions you get from patients that we're encouraging, of course, would then, you know, I'd be, I would be willing, or I mean, let's say it's Andy's week. He would be agreeable to getting a phone call from you or a text or whatever, and that he would respond within an hour with a response. And, and that way you'd have access to a experienced clinician who would be able to answer the acute patient clinical questions that you would, you would feel uncomfortable answering. That would be something we could probably get our members to embrace. If there were 12 people on the panel and you took one week every three months, you wouldn't get a host of calls. You might get a couple during a week, but it wouldn't be that onerous and they would just be phone calls so anyway there's an idea i think that's true because i think you know some people don't necessarily you know they recognize that they need to see someone or have have someone look at their films or you know they they recognize that there's not a lot of clinical recommendation that we can provide via phone but other people really do press for it. I know Dr. Edwards had asked me about engaging our APP and nursing members, you know, and having them kind of in a similar fashion, Dr. White, but having them sign up for, you know, periods of time where they were the the person that was on call. But the only thing I'm worried about with that is if it was a truly surgical question, you, you know, they would end up reaching out to a surgeon anyway. And so, you know, it's kind of just one more step, you know, I mean, it, it's just adding a layer before we would eventually get to probably the same point that, that we were going to reach anyway. I don't know. So I think, I think you're right. There could be a, a big benefit for it. So I think there's two pieces here, Tom. I think that's a brilliant idea. And I think it kind of goes along the lines. There is precedent for this. I mean, you know, a lot of the organ procurement centers have medical quote unquote control on call for clinical questions. I think that would be great. And I, I think as you said, I think it would not be super onerous. And we certainly have a, you know, we could use for now, we could use the panel of experts that we use for a lot of your expert panel discussions for the initial call pool. And then I think a secondary point is sort of what I said, which is we could identify surgeons that have specific skill sets so that if we said, yeah, I really think this person needs an operation and the person says, you know, I'm really not comfortable with that we could at least regionally try to f help them direct their patients to somebody who might be appropriate. Yes, I think that would be really helpful. I think, you know, what I do right now, and I think we've talked about this, is certainly give them a list of everyone who's in the regional area. I mean, I'll, if someone's looking for a surgeon consult, I'll pull all the surgeons in their geographic area for however many 
hours out they're willing to drive. You know, if they say, oh, I'll, I'm willing to drive within two hours, you know, two hour radius or something like that. And then try to figure out like, okay, based on where you are, then which members would make sense, you know? And others are, you know, will say to me, well, I want someone who specializes in X, you know? I'm like, well, I can't really, you know, tell you that necessarily. I can tell you who's spoken about it at our meetings or who's given a case review presentation about it. So I know they at least have some familiarity with it, but you know, I don't know necessarily with perfect specificity who focuses their clinical practice on certain things. And so having, like you talked about, having people fill out their profile with more specificity would be really helpful um, in that regard. If we promised each of these volunteer on-call surgeons a pair of primetime Bauman sunglasses, I'm sure they would say yes sign me up. You know they would. There's very little people wouldn't do for said exactly. sunglasses. I do think it's important to provide a consistent message too. You know, I, I do hear this frequently from patients like, you know, they they went and they saw, uh, you know, said surgeon, wherever it may be, and they were told nothing could be done, you know? And so then I think that sometimes people just kind of give up looking or, um, you know, they just, they don't, you know, part of it's the education piece too. And I think that's, that's such an important thing too, is that, hey, you know, some of the stuff that we're doing now as a society, you know, wasn't done 10 years ago or 20 years ago and, and people just aren't aware of it. And, and, you know, they kind of give this blanketed answer that they were taught when they were a resident and, um, you know, these patients get discouraged. And so I do think that it's important to kind of have a, a consistent message out there as well. So Sarah, I would imagine it's probably, you know, especially because we're doing some CRM stuff on our website, I would imagine probably be pretty easy to create sort of a checkbox of say four or five different subspecialties or some more advanced processes within the chest wall arena that we might be able to come up with. So for example, say costal margin, disruption, slipped rib, sternal, delayed fixation with grafting, you know, four or five different things that we could check off and even have so much to say, like, do you do this? Yes or no you know, roughly how many cases have you done of this, you know, and it's like a zero to 10, 10 to 50, 50 or more type of a thing. And then we could just sort of have that as sort of a layer to be able to um, help distinguish amongst our membership. So somebody says, oh, I, I don't care where I'm going to go. I want to go see the world expert in grafting. You know, um, is there somebody who's done a lot of these cases and you can look up, you know, who's done grafting and, you know, you can see Peter Cole's done a, a ton of these. You can say, well, there's Dr. Cole who's in or, you know, here are the here are the people that have done more than 50 cases of grafting type of a thing. Yeah, that would not be difficult at all. And it definitely would be something that we could incorporate in as we're, you know, making these CRM upgrades. That would be very doable. If if you guys can identify what those categories look like and you know, it would be it would be pretty straightforward and it could even be something that we could distribute on paper at the summit or where we have QR codes available that people could just fill it out online, you know, or QR code it and then and then complete it online and then I can upload it into the system. Okay, so I'm going to put that out to our listeners. So Dr. Schubel, Sarah's mom, if you guys can send us your thoughts. I'm curious as to what Sarah's mom's thinking right now. I'm, I'm yeah, yeah, so just send us your thoughts of what you think would be good ideas of uh, different subcategories of chest wall that we should incorporate. Please send us your thoughts and, and we'll start to work on putting that together. And hopefully we'll have something by the summit. 
I, I vote for QR codes. I'm trying to go completely paperless, so QR codes are my new thing now. So, Sarah, if you could just make all QR codes. We'd be asking the membership two questions, I think. Number one, do you want to be, do you want to let us know what kind of um, expertise you have and whether you'd be interested in hearing from us for referrals? But, but the other question is, would you be willing to serve as a, you know, hotline kind of thing and for a period of time and answer questions that from patients regardless of your, the geography and, and, and deliver, you know, unbiased advice and help, which, which would have nothing to do with whether or not you would ever see that patient or be remunerated or whatever. I think those are two different questions. And so I think we have to figure out a way to ask those questions separately. Thoughts? Well, I think your first question is, may not be a question so much as if you fill this out, you'll be in the you know, in the queries, right? Because anyone that fills it out, that's what they're doing it for. If they won't fill it out, then obviously you're going to be in the geographic queries. But if someone wants a specific topic, obviously they would miss out on that portion. So that would kind of be maybe self-managed. I think we're going to have to have a, a decent understanding of what members are where, but maybe even more than that, like what non-members are doing rift fixation and where are they at? And I get that question a lot. You know, being here in Omaha and then with Kansas City just three three hours down the road, you know, I, I knew oh, uh, Adam K lived there, but he doesn't live there anymore. So I'm not, you know, real familiar with who else is in Kansas City doing a lot of uh, riff fixation. And so if someone was to call me today and say, hey, I'm from Kansas City, like my only answer would be like, well, I only know of us in, in Creighton here in Omaha. I don't know of a whole lot of people doing riff fixation down there. Like, I don't know where to send you. So that would be one of the... Maybe one of the things that we would need to figure out a little bit more in order to like streamline that process. Well, I think that's where, you know, I have tried to encourage people to always send them to us, right? Because I, when people post like generic messages on Slack about like, hey, who's in Florida or whatever, you know, it kind of leads to just whoever one or two people know, whereas we have a lot of members in Florida, you know, just as an example. And so if instead they reach out to us, then I can give them the full list rather than having them just get kind of the list of the couple of people that come to a lot of summits that people know, you know? So I think that that's another thing that we should encourage is really getting people to reach back to the organization. Sarah, I wonder if this doesn't relate to that idea you had told me about a few days ago about having a world map or a U.S. map or a world map at the summit on a big poster board. And people, you know, stick a pin where they are with a little tag with their name. And then people can sort of hang out at the map or study the map or take pictures of their region and who's there and, you know, kind of make it graphic and fun. Just a, a listing of people, something like that. So, Tom, there's this thing. It's a like a box and it has a screen on it and it's connected to this thing called the Internet. And on it, they have this stuff called websites. And there's this really great website called cwsociety.org. You're confusing me. Stop, stop, stop. Yeah. Go back to the box part. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we do have that on the society website. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it needs to be updated and it's going to be updated. Well, that's the um, point. It's not updated. But we, it would, we would be updating this in real time by the people that are at the meeting. It would be a start. It wouldn't be everybody, of course, but something like that could be – it's very analog. I get it. It would be fun. Yeah. The one to the point at the summit was more just so people could see at that meeting where everyone was from, right? But I think, yes, the the point of having it on the website I think is where, you know, where we definitely can have some yeah. strengths. 
I totally agree. And I love the map idea. I would also like a separate pin to be able to like stick into Bauman's forehead that says Omaha, Nebraska, so that when he's not near the map, I know where he's from too. Absolutely. It's like find my phone. Again, the analog version. Yes. I'm from uh, Boulder, Colorado. All right. So get some updates here. I do. If you missed Journal Club yesterday, man, you really missed out. And the recording will be out. Um, it it will post to the YouTube. Well, it will surely be out by the time this posts, but um, it should be posted in the next hour. I think it'll finish rendering. It was such a good Journal Club. We we had um, one of our new friends from the University of Arizona down in Tucson, which of course is where Dr. Primetime Bauman did his fellowship. And um, it was by Dr. Mike um, Ditilano. Is that no Ditillo, right, Dr. White? I don't know why I say it wrong each time. I feel compelled. Yeah, I feel compelled to say it wrong, so then I have the opportunity to correct myself. Anyway, um, but it was really, really good. And and their new publication um, is interesting and compelling. If you didn't join Journal Club, either just read the publication because it was very interesting about some pain control methodology and or watch Journal Club. It'll be, you know, posted to to um, our site as as per usual. Um, but we also have case review coming up in two weeks at the end of the month, and that will be terrific as well. Awesome, thank you. Yeah, and how many days till Summit? I think we're 61 now. As they say, watch this space. It's getting, it's uh, getting excited. Uh, exciting, excuse me. Snap, you gotta believe. It feels like just a, a flash of a minute it really feels very very close but that's okay it's all going to be so smooth maybe or at least i keep telling myself that like the power of positive thinking right that that i keep just saying it so that's exactly do they make those glasses with readers can i get readers in those (laughs) i don't know (laughs) i don't know if they do tom you can get stick on readers for any glasses tom like the baseball outfielders the flip-ups on those glasses would look really cool It'd be unique. No one else in the world would have those. For no, that's true. That's true. reasons. You ever see the glasses Fred operates in? No. They look like this. These are these are my new operative glasses. Um, I'm gonna wear these. These glasses are not coming off my head ever. They're not like that, but he looks pretty prime time in them. I will say. Should uh, get him to send a photo. All right. So that being said, it's almost time to round this up. So you guys have some final stitches. Um, I got one. I was gonna do this one last week, but I had to sign off early. I just want to give just recognition to uh, a major uh, contributor of the uh, trauma community who uh, passed away two weeks ago. I don't know if you guys saw, but uh, James Steiner, you know, uh, he died uh, two weeks ago. And for those of you that don't know who James Steiner was, he was the one that uh, founded ATLS. So, you know, I think that many of us would not be sitting here today. You know, I mean, ATLS has revolutionized the way that we manage trauma patients and um, you know, across the, the world for that matter. And I just think, uh, you know, it's a, a big, uh, important individual that we've lost. And for those of you that don't know, he was from Lincoln, Nebraska, and that's where uh, ATLS started. So, you know, just right down the street from where I'm at, it's just, uh, it's unfortunate, but a big, uh, big contributor to um, the trauma community. Truly uh, an example of turning a tragedy into a, to a victory uh, with the whole ATLS thing. I, I've been teaching ATLS for 30 some years, and I've told that story hundreds of times and every time I do I get a little choked up a little tear in my eye because of course I practiced in Nebraska and I have 
ATLS is in my is is in my DNA. But yes, th thanks for that tribute, Zach. Appreciate it. Tom, you got a final stick? Um, I'll oh, go. Sorry, sorry. No, you're good. This is why we can't have nice things. Is me at this point now? My keyboard on my laptop, the backspace button doesn't work. The enter button doesn't work. The space bar doesn't work. So if I'm not at my work desk at home, like, you know, where I can plug into like a docking station, now I have a travel keyboard for any time I'm not at the docking station, which says a lot, except now the travel keyboard has a key that I somehow broke off, which again, looks completely out of, so like I have to set the travel keyboard on top of the laptop keyboard, and now it's missing keys, like, I, the the camera today is not for working like you guys why why is this so hard like i i don't know i'm not i'm not stupid with computers and yet i seem to just and and i cracked the screen the other day like i just seem to be really hard on these computers and i feel like i need to have a moment with myself to think about why like is it is it like a you know, am I secretly so stressed about work that then like I, I abuse my computer? I don't know. I don't know. But this is this is why we can't have nice things. Panasonic tough book while Tom unmutes himself. The dependency on technology is what puzzles me. I mean, here's a, <laughs> I got a pen and a paper right here and that, there's nothing wrong with them. It'll be there yeah. tomorrow. I can refer to them. Yeah, I just it's... write a letter by hand, oh give it to a, a pigeon, or a, a, you know, and then that's how you get this stuff. Yeah, just have that mail. That mail the disclosures to every person. Be like, please put a stamp mock, on these and mail them away, back. I don't have a broken yeah. keyboard. Yeah, you know, Tom, you're right, but you do have, but a lot of times I get those papers from you. There's uh, tequila on them. <laughs> that's what makes them collectors' items. So just. Hang on to them. <laughs> That's how you know they're authentic. Right. <laughs> Nostalgic. I have a final stitch. Unless, Andy, you want to go ahead. I'm coming off the bench. I'm going back to work on Monday after a month off. Actually, six weeks off. First time in my career I've ever done anything like that. And uh, it's been a very, it's been an interesting experience. I am very anxious to go back and rejoin the fray and see my partners and, you know, see patients and new and old. And I just uh, am grateful that I have been restored to a point where I can do that. I have a new appreciation for those that are infirm and injured and uh, are uh, anxious to get back to their real lives. How's the hand, Tom? Is it steady? Is this the hand you're going to be operating with? Steady as a rock, but this is this is the one I operate with. <laughs> so uh, I'm preparing for my presidential address, and I've been reflecting a lot lately on a bunch of things for a variety of reasons. And it occurred to me just the other day of how long we've all known each other and how long we've been at this process. And particularly with CWIS coming back to Salt Lake and, and some of those original trips, I was digging through photos and found some of the photographs from uh, 2016 at the new park. And it just absolutely has blown my mind when you sit down and really reflect on it how far we've come and particularly with something you know we talked earlier about this clinical scenario of the costal margin thing you know this is a disease pattern that's gone on for a long time and i think we just even didn't recognize it or even early on as we did this because our eyes couldn't see what our mind wouldn't let us and it's really fascinating to me how much we've changed 
and where we're going and just sort of focusing on where we're going to continue to go in the future. And uh, it's really been a, an amazing journey through this whole process. And I'm super appreciative and thankful of, of, of all the friends I've made and the, and the mentorship and the friendships and just how we've grown. And I, I'm sorry, I missed Fractional Line last week, but our friends from overseas and how they've come into the come into the fray and it's just been a really amazing trip and i'm just super i'm super excited 60 days can't come fast enough sorry sarah i know that you'd like it to be 80 days to to be able to breathe but just keep breathing and we're going to get through this and i'm just super excited to see everybody again and get reinvigorated so thanks well said man 2016 that was the first one i was just graduating high school then just kidding Surprisingly, not amount of time you've lost a lot of hair, Zach. Is that because of us? I, I will admit that I do occasionally get a text message from Bosley telling me that it's uh, time to get in to get my hair transplant. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got to go, but I just want everybody to do this. I think most people, I've had my cell phone number for, I don't know, well, over 20 years. I just realized over 20 years. I don't know if you guys have had the same yet. I still manage to get texts for some random guy named James who has a piece of property at 439 Stony Hill Ave. And like, the funny thing is I know everybody I know gets these like random text messages on their phones for like random things. Like my wife has somebody named Deborah who's like this staunch Democrat. My 13 year old son has one for some guy who's morbidly obese who keeps getting things about weight loss surgery. So I think everybody should come with an alter identity of the person that they get their cell phone <laughs> text to with a whole backstory. Yeah, Rosie the Riveter, 1944. I remember her well. <laughs> there was a big poster of her, wasn't there? Like holding a... Listen, guys, she was hot with the... Yeah, she was. I do, shirt tied I, at the waist and the kerchief around her head. She was... Man. And the biceps. She was yeah, hot. she was hot. I got to scoot, guys. Men's yoga night. Great seeing you. Tom, super excited that you're going back to work for you. Um, yeah, Tom. Excited you get back to work. I'm sure your partners are excited, too. Yeah, if you get a, a frantic call from me, it's because I've forgotten uh, how to do something. Don't worry. Don and Sarah left you six weeks worth of paperwork. They didn't leave any patients. They just left you six weeks worth of notes to sign. <laughs> Yep, you got to do all those. <laughs> all right, see you guys. great seeing you all. See you soon. All right, see you guys. Bye. Bye.